My name is Matt Wilson. I'm here reading the scripture. My privilege to read Mark, chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that the man's brother dies and he's a wife, so he's no child. The man must take the widow and raise our offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not a crazy overwhelming? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Cypress Church. It's good to see you. Good to be with you this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege to be able to share the word of God with you this evening. And if you're not already there, so turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. There's a man just to meet in the afternoon. One of those that says the roads are relatively clear when you're on your way to church, and so I'm glad I was able to make it. I have a, I have a keen recollection, um, a keen recollection in my mind of sitting around in a coffee shop with some of my classmates in college after a particularly challenging theology class. And this was a fairly common occurrence for us where we'd sit around and kind of debate or discuss the things that we uh, had conversations about in class. And this was often the case. Uh, with a group of college kids who didn't know much of anything about life, and perhaps even less about theology, um, we have embarked on trying to settle some of the more obscure theological controversies that existed. And so for us, often those debates were centered around the extent of individual will in light of God's sovereignty, and where does man's free will begin, and God's sovereignty end, or does it end of all, and all of those conversations, and I'm trying to solve age-old problems that have, that have been around in the church really for two millennia at least, right? So I remember, though, on certain occasions that uh, the conversations we have drift from maybe the more obscure topics to things that were just outright foolish. I mean, the Bible College equivalent of could God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it. I don't think that one was actually ever used for those, those kinds of silly debates and conversations. And so uh, we, we would get into these territories sometimes when we, we would realize that we were arguing about things that we didn't even believe. Just arguing for the sake of arguing or trying to pin somebody down to a position or trying to demonstrate how extreme somebody else's position was. And after reading the passages that we've been reading for the last several weeks, beginning in Mark chapter 11 and now, through this, this evening's passage. After reading passages like this, I hesitate to think about what Jesus would have said had he been sitting physically in the room with us as we were having those discussions. Because I think he would have had a lot to say. Like what he said in this passage, which is that you are very wrong. Right? That's just a very bold thing for Jesus to say. It's such a nature 
of sophomore conversations. But in this text, what we find is Jesus, for the third time in the same day, encountering a group of religious elites who had come to him, trying to trap them in his words. You'll remember first, going back to these, or going back to this, rather, into Mark chapter 11, the chief priests and scribes and the elders, which is the ruling class of the nation of Israel, had come to Jesus and begun to challenge his authority. They were challenging the very nature of who Jesus is and what his claims to authority and power were. They were trying to figure out exactly who this Jesus claimed to be. Could he actually be? God in the flesh? Could he actually have been a prophet? Was his power, in fact, derived from the God of Israel at all? Or was he, in fact, somebody who was messing around with the demonic? In Mark chapter 12, a group of Pietistic Pharisees and politically progressive Herodians, as we talked about last week, tried to force Jesus into this no-win scenario surrounding taxes. They're trying to pin him in, giving him a yes or no binary answer to what was a nuanced and very difficult Conversation. Jesus, of course, is too wise to be caught up in the midst of that. He goes so far as to reference these people as hypocrites for trying to pin him down in such a way. And this week we find it's the Sadducees' turn. Now, the Sadducees are an interesting group of people historically for a lot of reasons. First, because they came from aristocratic families. Unlike the Pharisees, these people were born into the right families. They were born into Levitic families, they had grown up in educated homes, they grew up in largely wealthy homes, they were people of significant social influence. These were the people who, who those in the town would have known about, even if they didn't know them personally. People knew who the Sadducees were. These were wealthy, aristocratic people, they were part of the high society, they were influential by nature of their families and their education and the position that they now held in the community. In fact, when we talk about the ruling class of Israel, the ruling class of Israel was largely made up of the Sadducees. In fact, the Sadducees made up the single largest block of the Sanhedrin. They have so much influence and power and money, they were so well known that they outranked even the Pharisees and the scribes. These individuals were known for their education, they were known for their social status, they learned of the best rabbis, they received high marks for their biblical literacy. And their special area of focus, in particular, were the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, books of the law. That was their particular area of study because they viewed only those first five books to actually be authoritative. In other words, they didn't look at the Psalms or, or Proverbs, they didn't look at the prophetic books, they didn't look at the historical books of the Old Testament as having the same weight or the same authority as those first five books. And so they devoted themselves wholly to studying those five specific books. And by virtue of their position, their education, their high status in society, all of these different things, they were also known for being extremely arrogant. They were a harsh people in dealing with others. And one of the defining issues of the Sadducees is that they downplayed the importance of a spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, they didn't believe in spiritual warfare, they didn't even really believe in spiritual existence outside of the existence of God Himself. And chief among the cornerstone beliefs would not believe in a spiritual world is that they did not believe in the afterlife, they did not believe in the resurrection. 
as a great school teacher of mine once put, because they denied the resurrection, they were sad, you see. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> but it's memorable, because 30 years later I can still recall it, and now you will too. <laughs> so these Sadducees come to Jesus and much like a college coffee shop, they begin banding about this riddle that the Sadducees have routinely employed in their arguments against the Pharisees. See, the Sadducees were actually a relatively conservative group in terms of their biblical interpretation of the Old Testament, much like the Pharisees, but this distinction of not believing in the resurrection had caused a major rift between the two. And the Sadducees, by virtue of their intelligence and their education and their status, loved to throw, probably, this particular story at the Pharisees when they were at cocktail parties or get-togethers or whatever else, just to try to stop these foolish Pharisees who happen to believe in the resurrection. And now they bring the same question to Jesus. Last week we talked a bit about the character of Jesus as defined by the Pharisees in that passage of Matthew chapter, or, sorry, Mark chapter 12. We've only been in this book for a year. In sense that I forget where we were. In Mark chapter 12, we talked about the character of Jesus, that he was, was one who spoke with truth. That he was unimpressed by people, that he did not concern himself with other people's opinions, and that he taught the way of God. All four of those, many of those elements of Jesus' character are, are on display in the text that we read this evening. As Jesus interacts with, with wealthy, influential socialites, who use their status as a weapon, you see the gentle but, but strong rebuke of Jesus Christ. And I notice what he says at the University 18, here's a conversation with the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. Now notice their appeal right off the bat. They're pointing to the Bible itself, they're using that as their authoritative word, and they're going to point to Scripture as the beginning of their attack on Jesus Christ, they're going to trap them up in his words, which they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and died, and no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now you can imagine, if you're a Pharisee at this time, hearing this whole conversation, you're trying to make heads or tails of this question because they certainly believe, the Pharisees that is, certainly believe in the afterlife, but they also believe in the sanctity of marriage, the idea that when you were going to be married, you were fully devoted to one another, and that your marriage actually extended into the resurrection, into the afterlife itself. So that to try to work through a problem like this would have been so frustrating for them. But in order to understand this, again, we have to understand who the Sadducees are. Because the Sadducees are experts in the first five books of the law, and because they don't take into account all of these other portions of the Old Testament, there are, there are several references throughout the Old Testament that reference the idea or the expectation or the affirmation of a resurrection that the Sadducees gave no legitimacy to. And it's important as well to understand the motivation for their question in this text. Because the Sadducees denied the idea of an afterlife and resurrection, earthly heritage meant everything to them. 
The idea of a physical legacy, of leaving behind children, of your name being carried on, of you having made your mark in the physical world, was heightened for you. In fact, in many ways, the physical lineage that they were going to leave behind had replaced for them the importance of the afterlife altogether. For all intents and purposes, this notion had become the driving force for their lives and the theology. So they posed this question to Jesus, talking about a hypothetical woman who loses her husband. And the passage that they reference right at the beginning is pulled from Deuteronomy chapter 25. You can read that on your own time. But in that passage, Moses specifies that, that, that if a man were to die, leaving a wife behind, the man's brother had a responsibility then to take up that wife, to, to marry her, and procreate with her. And if that child was then born, the child was to carry on the name of the father who had died. It was a way of keeping that family line, that family lineage, and that family name in the annals of Israeli history. And the idea was that in leaving a lineage, that man's name would never pass. Except in their story, not only did the first husband die, but the second brother likely died, or, or, or died as well. And on down the line, through to the seventh brother, and what's interesting is that the Sadducees point out that none of these men left a physical lineage. And then we find a good girl. Whose wife will she be have? The Sadducees asked this, knowing that they don't believe in heaven at all, knowing that they don't believe in afterlife. But here's ultimately what the Sadducees are saying to Jesus. They're saying, what is the point of the supposed resurrection if, one, you don't leave any lineage behind, if you haven't made your physical mark in this world, and two, if there's no clear pathway of miracle, bliss, and fulfillment in the afterlife. In other words, what they're saying is, what's going to happen to these six men in this theoretical afterlife who are trying to live their lives in fulfillment but have no way to call their own because presumably this wife is going to be married to one of the men and not the other six? An obscure story, certainly, for our modern viewers. But they're saying in this passage, heaven doesn't sound all that this whole idea of an afterlife that you constructed sounds like a waste of time. Notice what it says in verse 24. I just want to look at these first four words. Jesus said that. And the reason I want to pause there is because as we've seen Jesus interact with these other groups, the religious elites, he's interacting with the Pharisees and the Herodians and, and all of these different groups, we've seen Jesus bring out quite harsh words for the individuals who are actually asking the questions. He calls them at different point hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, having all the religious trappings, but inside being dead. And here in this passage, Jesus actually speaks relatively calmly and kindly to these men. It's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't have strong language for them. He actually seems to tolerate these particular individuals better because they weren't feigning respect for him, because they weren't making a pretense of having some appreciation for it. They at least were being candid in their attempt to describe them. Verse 24, and Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus said to these educated, aristocratic men, you think you know the word of God. 
and you've devoted your whole life to studying the first five books of the law, but it turns out that you actually know nothing of God's word or God's power. Verse 25. For when they arise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, if you're standing there listening to this as a Sadducee, all of this language has to sound strange to you. First, because Jesus actually doesn't, doesn't give an initial defense for his position on resurrection. That's to come. But he doesn't start with that. He, he begins by actually assuming the point. He says, well, when they rise from the dead, they have married or given marriage. And then, as if to put an accentuation on the point that he was making, he then says, they are like the angels in heaven. Remember, the very same angels that the Sadducees didn't believe in. This is an unusual response from Christ, but it actually says volumes. Because for Jesus, the idea of the afterlife, the idea of the resurrection, the idea of heaven, of eternal life itself, is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. He presumes it in his conversation with them. I understand what this means for us. So central to Christianity is resurrection. That without it, we would have no basis for our faith. Do you realize that Jesus comes and lives the life that he does and teaches all the things that he teaches and, and performs the miracles that he, that he performs and goes to the cross and dies on the mouth that does not rise from the dead? There is no new life in There is no future hope for us. There is no reason even to gather on Sunday as a church. The resurrection is so central to Christianity that if you try to remove it, or if people have actually proved that real, true evidence of the fact that the resurrection did not exist, all of Christianity comes unraveled. Jesus first begins by answering their objections regarding the nature of marriage. And I think this is an interesting way for Jesus to take it, because what he says ultimately to them is, you totally miss the point of what marriage is all about. And in fact, you totally miss, you totally miss the, the eternal nature of what it is that marriage represents. You presume, he's saying in the Sadducees, that marriage exists exclusively for the purpose of physical and emotional fulfillment and for the maintenance of family lives. And while all of those things are significant in their own right, while they are all even meaningful pieces of marriage, there is a much deeper, much more significant purpose for marriage itself. That's the whole purpose of Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read a few verses for you from Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Here's what it says Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Listen to this. In the same way also, husbands should love their wives as their own wives. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever gives his own flesh and nourishes and cherishes it. And Paul goes on to say this in verse 32. This mystery, speaking of marriage, this mystery is profound. 
And I am saying that it, as marriage, refers to Christ and church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul goes so far as to say that the whole purpose of earthly marriage was to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That just as a marriage demonstrates respectful submission on our part to Christ himself, the reason that we can fully submit to Christ is that we can fully trust in his sacrificial and generous love as a bride. And Jesus, in talking about the resurrection, ties in these seemingly unrelated ideas of marriage and eternity. In talking about the resurrection, Jesus guarantees the eternality of that covenant of love in his own resurrection from the dead. Here's what commentators said. The best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove any obstacle between us and himself. Listen to that language again. In his resurrection, he removes every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. Why was the resurrection of Jesus Christ so necessary? It was necessary so that the love of God was not just something that we merely heard about or even felt in an emotional sense, but that it would actually be brought into fruition at some point. That there would be a day in our future where we would stand eye to eye with Jesus Christ, where we would feel his embrace, where we would look into his eyes and know the love that he has for us, that we would find him exceedingly beautiful to behold. That we would savor him eternally. And the truth of the matter is, by resting in Jesus Christ's love and by delighting and worshiping him, we fulfill the ultimate design and purpose of our creation. And now, all of this leads Jesus to use the language, speaking of death and resurrection, he says, In the resurrection, they are like angels. I notice he doesn't say that, that in death we become angels, right? That's a very cartoonish, really a Western idea, the idea that when you die, you begin floating around, or there's these golden gates, and you have wings on your back. It's a very cartoonish picture. That's not at all what Jesus Christ is saying. What he says is that those who die and experience the resurrection and the new life are like angels. And what he means by that is that we ought to look at the eternal purpose of what angels actually do. So I draw your attention to Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. This is really what we sang out in the Revelation song, which is told through chapter 7 and chapter 4 of Revelation. Here's what Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9 says. John writes, I looked, and the whole great multitude that no one from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God 
forever and ever. Amen. And what Jesus is saying is that in, in the resurrection, when we become like angels and saying we are experiencing the perfect fulfillment of what God has created us to do. It's not that we're disembodied people. It's not that we have no knowledge of our life on this earth. It's not that we have no knowledge of each other. The Bible seems to believe that all of those things exist. But it's saying that you are now in a position to experience what God actually created you to perfectly experience. That marriage is a purposeful and beautiful shadow of the covenantal love of God for his people. And that shadow means its ultimate and eternal form when we as the bride of Christ find ourselves in the presence of the bride. For we are delighting and worshiping and glorifying our Savior. But the reason marriage need not exist in heaven is because everything that marriage pictures in this life finds its eternal and perfect form when we are in the presence of Christ. Jesus says to the Sadducees, first, recalibrate your understanding of what marriage actually is. And second, verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, Jesus is revealing something to the Sadducees, and he does it by putting on the master class in contextualization. See, Jesus recognized the people to whom he was speaking. He recognized that they gave no authority to the historical books, to the prophetic books, that he gave no authority to the wisdom books of the Old Testament, that the only thing they knew has been truly valid were the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch itself. And so, what Jesus does is he actually uses the Pentateuch to reveal their misunderstanding. He could have gone to any other passage and said, he gives them a quote from Exodus chapter 3. And he says to them, you are experts in the law. Have you not read? Have you not read about the resurrection? Have you not seen this in in your study? And then he references in the book of Moses, my name is before the book of chapter divisions have made their way into the Bible. And so he references to them the specific story of the burning bush in wilderness with Moses. And so do you remember in that story as, as Moses saw that burning bush and approached it, that he heard a voice cry out from among the bush, and, and the voice that came was the voice of God, the declaration that he made is, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the question for us is, well, how in the world does that actually convey the resurrection? Well, notice what Jesus then says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Do you understand that by the time God spoke those words to Moses in the wilderness, where he cried out and said, I am the God of Abraham, the Isaac, and Jacob, that Abraham had already been dead for nearly 500 years? And communicating what he did to Moses, what God was saying to him is, do you remember Abraham? Do you remember the great forefather of the nation, the one with whom I made a covenant, saying that his, his children would be like the sand on the sea, would be like the stars in the sky, that you wouldn't be able to count them? Do you know? Do you know that Abraham? I am his God, present tense, right now. 
God is declaring in that moment, in his conversation with Moses, he's saying, I am their God, and they are still mine. They are here in my presence. God, in making that declaration from the burning bush, was actually giving affirmation of eternal life in his presence. And the Sadducees, for all of their study, for all of their memorization, for all of their familiarity with the Word of God, had no means by which to understand the words that they were actually reading. So here's the question that Jesus is putting before the Sadducees. How would the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would make of him a great nation, benefit Abraham at all? If it ended with Abraham's death, if Abraham never even got to see the results of the covenantal promise of God being brought in fruition, how, how in the world would it have benefited Abraham at all? It wouldn't. And in saying that, Jesus is actually revealing the foolishness of the Sadducees' own heart. He's revealing to them, you put all your faith and all your hope and all your trust in the visible lineage that you can leave behind. Your name means something, and your position means something, and the influence that you have in society, or culture, or religion, or the world around you, that somehow that is going to be the thing upon which you hang your hat. That your word is so wrapped up in what you leave behind you when you die. But it somehow makes life worth living. But he's revealing to these very same Sadducees that Abraham never got to see the day where God brought this covenant into full completion. That covenant would have been useless to him altogether. Of course, Abraham can see this. And how in the world can he actually see it? Because he's with God. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In the very same way, we, 2,000 years later, read this story, have to be reminded of why the resurrection is so important to us. Because our tendency is to read a text like this, and maybe even in your own heart, your tendency is to read a text like this and go, man, I'm not married in heaven. I really enjoy my relationship with my wife and with my husband. It's the most meaningful relationship that I have now. I can't imagine not having That sounds like a sad thing, not a happy thing. Or maybe your tendency in reading the story is to think about, to think about the things where you have placed your hope, or placed your identity, or placed your happiness. That you put them in the things in this life, things that will be left behind when you die. And so the reminder of the resurrection is just as important to us sitting here 2,000 years later as it was to the original audience at the time of Christ's conversation. And Paul makes that exact point for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in verse 16 of that text, here's what Paul says. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have actually perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. How often is Christ merely a means to our lives? For we have all kinds of use and value for God in our life, so long as it leads us to something that we can experience, some form of happiness, some sort of success. 
in this life. But to live an earthly life without heaven in view. Is to be running wild without direction in your field. You don't know where you're going or what your purpose is. You have no hope for the end. Paul's going to go so far as to say that if there is no resurrection and Christ is not actually raised, then we are all just dead. And those who have died in Christ have just perished, and we have no hope for this life that our faith itself sees on. And a reminder that the obvious point of Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians is to say that the hope that we have is in the eventual resurrection from the dead. You understand that when we use the language of resurrection and new life and all of those things, we are not merely talking about spiritual life being given to us, that there is an actual, physical, literal resurrection that's going to take place. We so rarely give any kind of thought or meaning or intentionality or purpose to that. We think of things in purely a spiritual sense. And there is a very, very real sense, a right way to think about the spiritual impact of that. The promise that we are given is actually for a physical resurrection. That we are brought into the new heavens and the new earth. That there is an actual life beyond life. That the hope that we have right now is in the eventual resurrection of the dead. It's the reason that we recited together the Apostles' Creed. And that because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there is a day coming in which all of those who have died in Christ will be physically resurrected and restored. Not just spiritual resurrection, but the promise of a physical one in which everything that is broken is made right. So here ultimately is the problem with indulging in sophomore intellectual exercises about God. Much like a coffee shop chatter, theology students, you and I might have a tendency to engage in intellectual back and forth all day, and perhaps neither one of us would ever gain the other parent. But when you honestly bring your seemingly impeccable intellectual challenges to Jesus, he has an uncanny ability to use your challenges to reveal your own spiritual. One of the things that I love that we get to see throughout this text and the way that Jesus interacts with these different groups is that he uses the very things that are foremost on their mind, their foremost challenges to his authority and his kingship and to everything that is rightly due to him. And he uses the very same challenges that they bring to him to flip the spotlight back on them, to reveal how everything they are putting their hope in cannot bear the weight of their own hopes. How their own lives and their own theologies and their own morals and their own values and their own happiness ultimately cannot bring lasting joy. That it cannot bring satisfaction. See, this is the invitation that Jesus extends to you and I today. Do you understand that if you have a challenge in your mind of who God is? If you hear these words that Christ claims about himself, and you look at that and say, I don't know. 
I don't believe that. And here are all of my reasons why. Do you understand the invitation crisis is coming to you specifically today for your challenges? To the extent that you don't believe me, to the extent that you don't trust me, to the extent that you don't know me, allow me, allow me to use the very thing that you would that you would claim as a challenge to my authority and to my kingship to flip you on your head. The invitation of Jesus extends to you and I today is that we would be reminded, or even come to know for the first time, the God of love. That we have a hope beyond this life. A joy eternal in the beauty and presence of our Savior. That, brothers and sisters, is why we call this Christ. Not for what he gives here, but for the fact that he gives us himself about everything else, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. But I thank you for your word. I thank you that all of your words are taken. The authority of scripture is limited to the first five of the law or to the Old Testament. But that on every page that we read, we see implicit and explicit promises of the deliverance that only comes through you and of the resurrection of us. And so God, while we read a passage like this that is so unfamiliar to us in, in the sense that it doesn't align with our Western ideals and understandings and concepts, we're also able to see ourselves in its in his words. That we have built our hope and built our trust and built our confidence on things in this life and this world that cannot satisfy and cannot bring joy. And those might be good things for us. They might be things like marriage or family or work. And they might be things that are more explicitly civil. But either way, God, you're reminding us through texts like this that there is a hope that through Jesus Christ, through his life and his death, and yes, his resurrection, that we all now have hope for a resurrection in our That we experience new life, yes, and amen right now. That we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. And that through you, we have power over sin. But that there are oases of life where we're not even in the presence of sin. So God, to the extent that we don't believe these things, to the extent that we push against them, or to the extent that we don't live by them, would you reveal our weakness? Show us where we're missing things. And help us to place our faith and our trust in you and in your hope. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.